This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve dash masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right. Hello, hello. How's everybody doing today? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Another Friday. The dreaded banking crisis day. I know. I I love (laughs) it. Jason, one of our partners, said, "I hate I hate weekends." Earlier this morning, <laughs> definitely an weekends interesting time for, <laughs> at uh, this particular time. Yeah, yeah. And and before we dive in, obviously, uh, we'll be discussing lots of things, and none of this is any investment advice of any kind. And uh, you should not seek that here. Um, so you know, yeah. I guess that's that. <laughs> Mike with the comprehensive, Very comprehensive. Compliance yeah, well. declaration. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yes. Shall I, shall I read it out? I mean, it does, it does say that, it, you know, <laughs> we, we believe everything that, you know, we say would, would be somewhat accurate, but are not bound to that. All yeah. those good things that would be in any disclaimer. I think there's a disclaimer at the end too, that you can uh, read, but just a nice yeah. reminder. That's right. That's right. Uh, so interesting, combo. an interesting few weeks, an interesting few weeks for markets, an interesting few weeks for lots of active strategies, had a major reversal in um, many of the strategies that have really kind of helped keep portfolios afloat uh, since the start of 2022 during this um, inflation shock, um, rate rise, uh, liquidity drain environment. We had a, you know, obviously a major run in value after a very long drought and in small versus large after a very large drought um, and uh, you know trend following dominating strategic asset allocations uh, obviously a lot of those dynamics reversed pretty aggressively in the last week or so at least they've corrected um, and I think it just highlights how difficult it is to stick with diversifying strategies, uh, sometimes, and you know, and, and certain types of environments are especially challenging uh, for all strategies, not just for for diversifiers. But um, you go through these these periods where your kind of traditional portfolios uh, really have the the snot knocked out of them for for many months. Uh, you're loving on the diversifiers, and then something happens that that is a, a, a major overnight shift in the regime and the diversifiers end up getting punched in the face and the strategic allocations end up holding in a little better. Uh, so, you know, that's really the story of diversification. I remember Brian Portnoy, I want to credit him with the saying uh, that I will now butcher, but it goes something like um, diversification means always having to say you're sorry, right? And um, so I, I think this period this whole period since 2022 has really highlighted the veracity of uh, of that assertion. 
Well, I also think like before before you start, Rod, because I, I do think we've missed a bit of an opportunity here. So we we um, Rodrigo did publish an article called "Defying the Bear's Grasp: The Emotional Journey of Achieving Managed Futures uh-huh. Prosperity," and I want to bring everybody's attention to that because you can go to Invest Resolve slash blog, and it'll be the top blog there, and we're going to dive into how a strategy like the one Adam is alluding to, the managed futures world and a CTA trend, uh, the index used in it, is really hard to follow, even when it looks like it's super easy to follow. And, uh, and I, you know, I think it's kind of neat that we've got uh, a new sort of channel of thinking, and this is enti- entitled Rodrigo's Reflections. Right. So we've, we've got a little bit I of- I apologize uh, in advance to all the, all the listeners. <laughs> You're gonna have to we hear got- my ramblings now. I've been given I've been giving full bore now to go and talk about whatever I want to. Watch out mm-hmm. in my in my you know crass way. Um, well, no, so so I think if 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 people are on and you're able to go grab that uh, piece, go and and download it because it'll give you a little bit of insight to what we're referring to. And I think as we all know, not no strategy is easy to hold all the time. That is just the way it is. But over to you, Rod. Now, well, the, the interesting, the interesting thing, like, why did I write this? It was, it was actually from listening to my say myself say over and over again that this is going to be the decade of macro, and listening other macro people uh, talking about how it's going to be great for macro, going into Real Vision TV, which is based out of the Cayman Islands, and hearing them say macro is going to be great, <laughs> and, and then you start looking at macro, and it's just been tough. And you think, God, is it, it was supposed to be the time of macro, now it's over. Let me go back. Let me take a look at how easy it was in other bear markets. Just to kind of, just to kind of compare, right? it can't be this tough. It can't be this emotional. And so I went back to another bear market that I've always kind of talked about as being a good old fashioned, multifaceted, multi-year bear market, which is the tech crisis, Right. We, we call it the tech, tech crisis, but in reality, it's it was multiple crises. It was it may have started with mm-hmm. it actually started with the LTCM crisis if you think back, because well, the Thai bot, Russian yeah. ruble, LTCM, and then you get into like nine eleven, you get into Enron, you get into you know recessions um, and and <clears throat> earnings recession in the, in the market, and you find that that bear market it's just a, a eight buy the dip opportunities and multiple bear market rallies that are strong, right? 15 to 20%. And, and we talked about this in the podcast. We just hadn't talked about it in relation to the other strategies that are generally taking the other side and making money during that bear market. And the reality is that um, if you just look at point to point, which is what I just kind of always done, if you're thinking of trend, CTA, global macro, if you look at point to point, it looked great. In fact, I've always looked at year over year, right? So the the first thing I do in the pod and in the in the blog post, and I'll share my screen now, is I just say, okay, look, um, if I just show you the bar charts and the returns to these strategies, no, not slides. And the returns to these strategies year over year for that three-year bear market, um, it looks pretty fantastic, right? So I just grabbed the SockGen Trend Index because um, it's easy. And and you can see here that in 2000, the MSCI All Country World Index or Global Equities was down 13.5%. SockGen Trend up 12. Next year, down 179 versus up 26 Sorry, the next, year, next year's flat versus down 17.9. The, the, in 2002, 26% positive returns for the stock trend index versus negative 22 for global equities. Up 12 in 20, 2003, down nine in for global equities. And then, you know, the annualized rate of return is around 15% for trend and around negative 19 for global equities. So upon first blush, it seems so easy, right? This is why people might have been saying it's the it's the decade of macro. Um, and I don't know, you guys probably felt the same way, right? Am I am I wrong? Like until actually digging into this, how easy it seemed from ten thousand feet. Yep, <clears throat> I've been around long enough that I, I think I'm not really surprised. But and then I, I may have been you you know hopeful. 
But even if you look at the equity line, right? Like that's the bar chart. That's obviously so good. I can't get enough of it, right? And then you look at the line chart and it's still pretty good. Like it's it's a mirror image of global equities for the most part. It's not terrible, right? You end up, uh, and we're missing here some some labels, but you end up like, up 58% over the full bear market up until like from 2000 to March 13, 2003. And you're down, I can't even remember the- um, 50%, 49 and a bit. Yeah. And so the even the equity line looks great, right? So what I did is I said, because the issue right now is people that have allocated to these areas probably allocated at the peak of the of the cycle, right? When it was doing its best, when they're like, they had a- massive run up in two or three months, maybe February, March. And they're like, well, I got to get myself some some of those non-correlated strategies. And then you find yourself having a drawdown and then a zigzag six to nine month period. Um, and so the, the next chart that we show here is just dissecting that trend strategy from periods of zigzagging and consolidation to periods of new highs. And what you see is how, just how difficult that decade of, or like three year of macro was even for macro, right? It was just one of those, like, you just kind of have to accept that if you're going to be different, you're going to have something that's going to be non-correlated and it's going to be a, a schizophrenic market, bear market or bull market, whatever it is, we're going to spend a lot of time in purgatory and you're going to spend very little high-fiving uh, your friends for having an allocation to something that reaches new highs very rarely. In fact, less than 15% of the time, this index is spent um, in reaching new highs. Now, this varies depending on the strategy, especially when we're thinking about global macro, you know, the, the strategy that we put together. It, there's a little bit of change here and there, but broadly speaking, that's the experience. That's what it is. In these volatile periods, right? And I think it it, 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 it behooves us to sort of be honest here and say that we need to remind ourselves of this from time to time. I mean, it, it, it's oftentimes we're, we're very steeped into all of this. We're, we're looking under the hood of our strategies. We're, we're, you know, dealing with this day to day, dealing with our clients, with, with prospect investors. But ultimately, every now and then, when you do go through a drawdown in a volatile period like this, even if you've just made a fresh new high recently and your strategies are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, it does take bit of uh, stoicism and, and, and sort of cool-headedness and, and doing analytics like this to remind ourselves of just how hard investing, successful investing actually is, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and just to, again, this all started with, huh, this is tough these days. So how, like, how does, what does that all look like in, since the uh, bull market began or the, the bull market in, in trend and the bear market in equities? We're kind of telling the same story, right? It's the index since the beginning of 2022 is up around 14%. The global equity markets are down around 14, 15%, a full offset. But man, oh man, is it difficult, right? Again, same story. You had an abrupt uh, parabolic almost move in the beginning of 2022, and then you give up a lot of it, and then you go sideways and you get hit with these exogenous shocks, right? And, and the 2000, 2001 period, it was 9-11, it was Enron, it was a variety of things. And last week, it was the, um, the, the SVB bank going under and causing a chain reaction. It's, gonna, it's just part of the game, right? it seems to be. So anyway, that was, a, that was an interesting, fun little blog post just to remind us that you got to understand what you're invested in, right? Whether it's your equities, your credit, your bonds, your private equity, just it's, it's important to understand its place in a strategic holding as a strategic holding. And, you know, you're going to have rough goes in any one of these mandates at any point, and they might last much longer than you expect. But if you understand why they're likely to be structurally different, because I think that one of the questions is, well, why, why do we think this is going to continue to work and continue to be non-correlated to equities and bonds? Well, it's just the way it's built, right? I mean, we can talk about that. I think we talked about that last week, too. It's just it can short things. It has more diversity. It uh, can go long. The investment universe is completely it can go different. Long than mill wheat and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It is just structurally different. So we can count on that, right? 
And then we, the, the data mining aspect of it is do the humans tend to herd in a trend following strategy? And there's enough literature out there that probably backs that up, et cetera, et cetera, right? So then if you believe that and understand its structure and its character, then you just kind of have to put it in and then plug your nose and rebalance ultimately. Yeah, rebalancing is key. And I think, I think the, um, some of the potential challenge for the individual owners or allocators to strategies in this domain is to some degree a bit of a lack of intuition to some degree. Because, you know, if you have your equity-based portfolio and you see generally what's happening in markets, you'll have a general sense of what's happening in, in, in your portfolios. You may have a value tilt, you may have a growth tilt, and those types of things will be reflected in some differentiated performance. But when you start to think about, you know, the something like the SOC Gen Trend Index, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's like the tracking the 10 largest managers or something like that. Right, the index itself is that is that kind of correct for the stock yeah, trend index? The yeah. trend index, yep, yep. It's reconstituted yeah. every year with the ten largest managers. Yep. Right. So, so you have the ten of the largest managers across you know anywhere from probably forty to eighty markets, both long and short those those markets, trading each individual one of those markets on various trend lookbacks and and things mm-hmm. like that, and that is is much more difficult to garner just general intuition as to what to expect on a day-to-day basis, right? You could have commodities carrying the day where your equities and bonds are suffering. Uh, probably the case in, uh, in sort of that 2021-2 uh, period, you know, as we, as we ended one bull market, sort of started another. And then you go through a transitionary phase where there's a lot of chop and slop. And so there's just not a lot of trends to harness in the marketplace. And, and so some of that intuition is, makes it much, the lack of intuition can make it much harder to stick to a strategy. And, and that's, you know, kind of, I think what you're saying, Rod, too, is, yeah, you got to kind of know these things, know how they behave. And stepping back and looking at a period like that three-year period where it was a multi-year bear market, you can garner some intuition from these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, we, we've, we've looked back over various timeframes uh, over over the years and observe the same sorts of things. And, you know, I think 08 isn't too dissimilar. There's periods in 2008 where it's it, it, it does not look particularly robust for managed futures. But at the end of the year, um, you know, certainly came out with some robust returns in that period of time in in those in those indices and strategies and things like that. So interestingly, in, in reviewing the data and even reviewing some of the other factors like seasonality, mean reversion, like, you know, what we do put put all together, I'm kind of rooting for um, for a uh, an inflationary growth environment that seems to like hit all the cylinders. Right. You get to be you get to be killing it long only in commodities and, and some, you know, developed eight nations aren't doing well and you're shorting those like it. It, that's the ultimate year if you're going to be uh, investing system, <laughs> and that's the ultimate kind of global macro. It, it just it, it works in in differentiation because the the best things tend to be global equities and, and developed equities and commodities that most people don't have, and uh, and it's much more stable. There's just less crises in a growth environment, right? So if you actually look at the data that. That green part that we were showing earlier is much longer, and there's there's much more green and less red in in that type of environment it's really when you're breaking things that it becomes really hard even if you're making you're ultimately making money so let's i don't know what's going to happen but let's root for an inflationary growth environment i I almost don't know what to root for i'm gonna say i'm like i'm actually not sure what to root for other than you know those strategies go up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Another aspect of, of, of getting to know the strategy a little bit better and, and kind of doing these analyses throughout different types of regimes, different types of market structures and, and, and market dynamics is to recognize that these periods offer opportunities for entry points. I mean, typically we, we live in an industry where people chase returns. Return chasing is one of the most common behaviors that we see out there. But once you go through an analysis like this and you recognize that these drawdowns in the strategy offer great entry points to then reap the rewards once there is a next phase shift and a next uh, a leg up in the uh, quote, call it crisis alpha uh, type of uh, behavior that we see. 
then you start to understand that not only should you rebalance the strategy using this volatility to your favor if you already own it, but these are really some of the great entry points uh, for investors that have been on the sidelines thinking about CTA, managed future, whatever the strategy may be uh, to complement some of their traditional holdings as opposed to chasing uh, uh, these strategies uh, next time they pop. So uh, can, I, can I we put the, yeah, one of the insights. And, and Richard, on, on top of that, can we bring back the chart of, uh, of the actual CTA index line? Just because I think we may have, I don't know if we covered this one point, but the returns come in a series that is non sort of regular and normal. You have these periods of struggle and potential chop and slop, maybe the, the longer term one through the through the uh, the period. But you can see there's this chop and slop and then there's these sudden bursts of upward performance that are, you know, ex- ex- sort of extreme. And, you know, it, we didn't quite get the opportunity to get things through the compliance pipeline. I know Rod- Rodrigo's already got his uh, next uh ruminations uh, ready to go, ruminations and reflections, which is, okay, well, can, can you time the equity line? So we, we can't share that quite at this point, but I will say stay tuned because that is going to be hot on the heels of, of this particular article. And, um, and, the, and, and the findings of that are, you know, it's hard. It's actually really hard to, to do that type of thing. And, um, and you can see through the character of this, of the blue equity line, that you go through the chop and slop, and then you have these large rewards in very short periods of time. I think it's worth um, maybe commenting on Richard's point about drawdowns being uh, sometimes an opportune time to add to managed future strategies in particular. Um, And we talk about this quite a bit internally, but oftentimes what happens during drawdowns is, uh, why do we have drawdowns? Well, it's because there's a um, there's a mix of signals, or the mix of, or the signals are changing fairly rapidly, and when you average them all out, you end up with very low exposure. Right over time, as you come into kind of a peak in equity, you often have fairly large exposures on because you know the the trends are in fairly extreme um, sustained places. Uh, all the trends are aligned. Maybe the other signals are um, are also aligned on occasion as well. So you've got you've got pretty large exposure on. Oftentimes, as you move into drawdowns, especially if they're more sustained than average, your signals become become conflicted. Right? Maybe you've got short term trends up, long term trends down. Uh, carry measured one way is up. Carry measured another way is down. Um, monthly seasonality is positive. Weekly seasonality is negative, etc. And so you come into these periods with very low exposure, right? So what's, what's, what's interesting is the ability to enter um, managed futures or systematic global macro strategies when the strategy itself has already done the hard work of reducing risk for you, right? And so you're able to come in, the volatility has low exposure, and you're able to let the systems then add exposure to markets as those markets begin to generate stronger um, signals again, right? And so, you know, if you come in near the peak, you come in when risk often is kind of full on and you're full exposure to whatever happens next. Whereas if you come in near um, after a sustained drawdown, you're coming in when often risk is really low in the portfolio, exposure is really low. And you could take advantage of the systems to increase exposure as the opportunity set improves. Yeah. And, and look, I think the, obviously one of the reasons that return stacking is an interesting concept is that it helps you keep what you want, right? In whatever ways you want, and you can stack strategies on top that are difficult to hold. So that's that's kind of a new innovation that has become a bit easier to uh, a bit more palatable to invest in things that are non-correlated, right? Because it's just it's just so funny just how short the memories are. Last week or last month, I was having numerous conversations about how how good it felt to have something in the portfolio that was up three, four, five percent when equity markets and bonds were down three percent, right? And then this month, bonds are up quite significantly. Equities are kind of flattish to down, and then you have a negative outcome for 
the strategy that was short bonds, right? And short some equities, long some equities, and, and getting really hurt. Now, it has been an outsized event, and we can talk a little bit about that. But the, the point here is that that's, you know, you, correlation, you get, cor- you, you get diversification even when you don't like it with these things. Um, yeah. So- and to add some color, Rod, to that point, I mean, the short uh, exposure to interest rates, short-term interest rates, euro dollar, euro ever, that sort of instrument, as, as well as treasuries and other uh, sovereign bonds internationally, had been one of the key drivers of positive returns for CTAs and global macro strategies throughout 2022. And into the beginning of this year, so it's oh, yeah. it hasn't fully reversed. It ha- it, uh, strategies haven't given all back, but it is not uncommon for you to see uh, some of the price dynamics uh, that managers had been benefiting from to have some reversal, and there to be some widespread pain across a, a an industry. So this is just kind of par for the course, and again, not something we're not unused to. But it still hurts and it's still unpleasant and uh, it just uh, forces us to revisit uh, uh, and have a little bit of a gut check and, and remind ourselves of, of what we're doing and, and help our clients do the same. Yeah, but look, it, like that's a chart of the the um, TLT, which is a long-term treasury, right? And the, the uh, red line is the 12-month moving average. It hasn't even like crossed. That's more the higher duration bonds, but you can see that sustained downtrend and if you're a trend manager that's just beautiful right um and then you have this pop here in in march and then if we go down to kind of the 10-year notes it only is just kind of changing trends right and and popping out the scary one really is the short-term rates right look at that chart beautiful steady chart and then what was it? A, a ten standard deviation move in some of the rates. Yeah, in rates. Yeah, these. This is more short term bonds, but um, short term bonds. I think the two year had a uh, a move that was, if you standardize it for the uh, the vol that we were observing coming in to the uh, you know Friday and Monday. Um, you know the the two years still had a pretty pretty sizable move. Um, eleven standard deviations yeah, about, I think about eleven the... standard deviations. Yeah, the euro dollar and the um, bankers Canadian bankers acceptance and uh, Euribor, all of these the shats um, so uh, short term German rates, all of these had moves that were, if not the largest one day move in their entire history, um, the second largest one day move in their entire history. Um, and it happened that they they went in the opposite direction of the prevailing trend. So it's kind of not surprising that all of the, that all of the macro managers, any sort of systematic macro signal uh, was, was pointing to a short in rates and bonds that had been pointing to a short pretty consistently for several months. The long-term trend was very steadily lower. The, um, the carry was insanely negative, implying a short. It was a- a- actually happened to be in a negative seasonality period for rates and bonds. Um, there was a confluence of things that um, would, you know, suggest that you should be short these the rates and bonds. And um, you know, I-, I think it's it's reasonable to think that since pretty well all of the major macro um, systems. We're pointing in the same direction. Systematic macro managers all kind of had the same trade on at the same time, and and so that exacerbated to a little to to a small degree some of the moves that were um, that were observed on a, on a few of those days. But then that kind of shook out over the ensuing few days. So you know, it's um, this is a pretty rare event, but you had to expect these kinds of events to 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 take place from time to time, and that's just part of the business. Yeah, they're yeah. rare and they're very rare in normal distributions, but this isn't a normal distribution yeah. well, arena well, of study. And the, the crazy part is looking at the allocations; they were they weren't that large from a risk perspective. Yeah, no, it's right? cool. Like, I mean, when you look at at the CTA index allocations or some proxy of the CTA index allocations, and you go back all the way to 1990 with those allocations, then the worst day 
with the holdings that CTAs had or a proxy of them coming into Monday uh, of last week, the day when most CTAs got, got hit pretty hard, the, if you use those weights and you apply the returns on every single day back to 1990, um, the worst prior returns was around 6.5%, 6.5% loss. And um, it was, you know, at, at the sort of 12, 13 ball that the trend index operates at, about, you know, one and a half times the worst previous uh, return on that day that you would have observed over the entire history of the index, given those weights. So yeah. pretty, um, pretty, pretty big shock. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this is from another strategy, but it tells the same story, right? Which is, if you look at the exact same weights and go down in history and, and, look, and plot the distribution chart, what happened on Monday had never happened before, right? Which is, again, this is Mike's favorite saying, right? The, the, the future has... The future holds what the past is yet to reveal. And so, you know, you have a moderate exposure to whatever it is and a 10 standard deviation event happens, you're going to get hurt, right? It's going to be, it's going to be something that you've never experienced before. The question is, well, is, is, is something broken? Is, are we going to have a 10 Sigma event every other week? You know, how often do these happen? And really what was the carnage? Was the carnage that the, that these systems went under? No, they were diversified enough to sustain a big loss, but not an, an immeasurably unrecoverable loss, right? Um, but it was, <laughs> it was quite crazy and mind blowing actually to see that move in such short order. Now, yeah. these were the, uh, standard deviations across Euro dollar backs, the two year note, the Euro bores. So you're looking anywhere between nine and 12 standard deviation, uh, events. Which are, I mean, a three, I mean, three how often do those happen in the universe? Uh, no, like, you know, yeah. Like, like the, yeah. once in every hundred, um, multiverses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it, it's uh, basically they don't happen. This is this is not an illustration of so much of of how rare it is as it is that you can't measure risk properly. Um, yeah. When when risk, um, you know, when there's a major shock, right? Literally, These Minsky no moments, way. right? Yeah. Once you yeah. pet you, once you pass through. When you once you cross a Rubicon from low vault to high vault, right? When there's a phase shift, whatever methodology you're using, triangulating ensemble methods <laughs> used to 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 measure volatility, that stuff goes out the window, and you're now in in, in Mr. Hyde's territory. You're you're, you're now in, in in Minsky moment. So it, it really is uh, a complete change in character. Yeah. And yeah. IR impossible, right, here is the bond price action we saw last two weeks, largely due to corporate accounting and treasury departments moving cash in excess of 250000 to UST and money market sweeps. Yeah. I mean, this is a chart from uh, um, Mike Green's newsletter uh, that I highly recommend people read to get a different perspective. But what he shows here is the change in bank deposits from peak, right? So if you look back to 1973 there were a few in the 70s obviously 1981 october 2001 but this is a pretty big one and it happens so fast i mean when people move money from deposits they have to put it somewhere they're either moving it to one of the big banks but i think monday people were just worried about the whole system so you're you're likely going and buying t-bills and money market funds or buying t-bills what's right? interesting about this chart too is the april 1994 period which was the bond massacre. Yeah, That's when Greenspan came out and unexpectedly, without warning, ratcheted rates up fairly quickly. And we had, you know, some of the largest losses in bond portfolios historically. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, it would be interesting to go back and look, but I imagine it was sort of the same, some of the same dynamics in that um, there was a there was a Fed rate that was increasing at a rapid rate and the banks could not keep up potentially with the rates they were that were competing in the marketplace. Yeah, and, and the reason for that is because they locked in longer term. That's how they make money, right? Banks make money by taking deposits and then loaning that out at longer duration. And you're hoping that you're just making a spread. That's basically it. And so certain banks have done that better than others. Certain banks have hedged. Certain people decided to mark to market 
or not, not allowed to mark to market. And rates are up at five. Um, you've locked in your bank rates at two. You need a spread. You're offering your depositors 1%. So I, I do wonder um, how much of this was, yes, okay, there's a bank run. But once it was solved, people being waking up to the fact like, wait, what am I getting in my deposits? What can I get simply by moving my money to a, to a brokerage account and then buying some T-bills or some money market? Like, it, I think it was the Minsky moment here was, oh, I can get 4% more a year by doing something relatively simple, right? I, even after you quell the, uh, the fears that, that there's going to be a systemic run, if you're a thoughtful, tre- like people are running businesses and the people running the treasury are just kind of trying to pay their, their bills. But all of a sudden they're forced with thinking harder about how to do that. And I think that's more of a systemic thing that might, um, you know, might continue to lead to, to changes in how um, banks interact with businesses. I think, no, no pun intended, that you didn't mean to say that the people at the treasury are wondering how to pay their bills. The, no, no, no. The, yeah. the, the, the treasury, the treasury departments and companies. Small T treasury. I'm talking about like, you know, small companies, the guy who runs the money being like, being Finally, like, you got to look at your portfolio. Like, what, what are we doing with our money? Where can we get more yield? Where can we get more safety? Yeah. I think that's, that's for that's everyone starts people. to run out yeah. and check yeah. uh, U.S. <laughs> well, Treasury CDS. <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of that that old meme that always surfaces at these types of moments, right? The the uh, the monopoly. Uh, if the bank runs out of money, the bank never runs out of money. You can just write the numbers of the money on slips of paper. And it's right in the, in the rules of monopoly. Rule number one, the bank never runs out of money. You can just take some slips of paper and write some numbers on them to make more money. <laughs> I always enjoy that meme every 15 years or so. And I guess the main concern now is that what this is actually like following through on Rodrigo's comment and and, and kind of game theorizing what, what happens next. I mean, you can imagine most of the regional banks, the smaller banks, uh, continue to see outflows because now there's this question, there's some contradiction between the Fed and the Treasury. Uh, you know, w- what kind of backstop can the uh, non-FDIC-insured deposits expect? Uh, and, and while there's a question mark there, we can expect there to be uh, uncertainty and worries about the banks. And even if there is, because there's so much more yield outside of bank deposits, uh, you're probably going to see some outflows. So I think ultimately what we're seeing here is a, a, a different, a, a change in the environment for the banking system in the U.S. and ultimately just more uncertainty, right, that we're going to see in the markets. And, and, and I think this comes back to, you know, the way they are our own operating system, which is diversification, risk management, and, uh, you know, trying to to protect one's portfolio by having different asset classes and different styles and different ways to, to attacking the problem. And most yeah. often it, it serves best not to try and o- overthink this. Just do your rebalancing. Whether those rebalances are calendar based or asset weight based within the portfolio, just mm-hmm. do your, just do your rebalancing. And uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll get you a long way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's, it was, it was just to me, the speed of it was mind blowing. Um, but it was <clears throat> just online banking. You can just do things a lot faster. And if you have clout and you're telling your your uh, stakeholders to get the money out of Silicon Valley Bank and do it overnight if you can, you can go at four in the morning in your online banking account and, and transfer money out. There was just no way that anybody had seen that coming. There's no guardrails for that, right? Well, this is this is an interesting point to explore, right? I mean, what this really demonstrates is that in the modern era of social media and instant intra-bank transfers via, your, via mobile devices from anywhere in the world, there is no reserve ratio less than one that protects a bank from a bank run, right? It completely obliterates the concept of fractional reserve banking, right? Fractional reserve banking relies on the trust of depositors. And if, you know, Kardashian can tweet out that she's pulling money from Schwab because she thinks that I should probably just use like, you know, broker or bank X from bank, from bank X that, 
um, be, because she's hearing that they're underfunded, um, then, you know, Kim can, can cause a run on any bank she wants. And all of Kim's followers on their iPhones, on their glittery iPhones, can, can, can use their, you know, manicured fingernails to, 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 to transfer funds from that, is that bank the picture. to anywhere else they want. <laughs> So that's like it, picture. It, I like it. It's um, it really is a very different world. And I think we're exposing a systemic risk in this environment that um, probably the authorities and most investors and depositors just were not aware of prior. Yeah, the virality of the uh, dissemination of information. This is the first time that we've had this kind of event post the social media era. I think uh, 2011, 2012, I think was when the first, well, well uh, I guess that's around when the iPhone came out first. And I, I think the first social uh, media companies came out right after that. So yeah, this is the very first time that we've had this type of event when there's social media and, and Reddit and all of these kinds of very viral forums that just, you combine that with uh, uh, 24-hour banking and that sort of thing, the uh, the speed at which these things can happen is I just think only it's, to increase. It's a, it's a good thing that Peter Thiel and Kim Kardashian are not good buddies because if Peter had reached out to Kim and said, hey, dude, you know, you better be pulling your funds from Bank X. Credit Suisse would have gone under two weeks ago. That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with their uh, with their bejeweled phones transferring all the money out so <laughs> i <laughs> it's just a really strange uh a really strange environment and and i do think like it is an interesting question like what is what is a loss like this in portfolios or in you know in in certain types of strategies what does it say about the risk of these strategies is the risk any bigger or smaller than than uh anybody anybody thought before, right? I mean, so we've had a, we've had a, the single largest day loss in the history of many, of many funds in the, in the managed futures and, and global macro space um, and in the indices. Um, you know, does it mean that the, the funds or the strategies are any more risky than they were, than they were before? No. I mean, we, we all, you had to know going in any strategy, including, by the way, a strategic investment in the 60-40 portfolio, is vulnerable to a Black Monday like they had in 1929 or uh, October 19th, 1987, or what have you. There's just no way to avoid these risks. If you diversify your portfolio into a basket of diversified global, you know, normal betas, let's call them, like like bonds and equities and, and commodities, et cetera, and then you diversify ac across a variety of other sleeves. Maybe it's the value factor. Maybe it's uh, small versus large. Maybe it's in the qualities, whatever. And if you're going to if you're going to diversify your sleeves, then you just have a lower likelihood of having um, a cascade of these types of days. It doesn't mean it's zero, but you have a much lower likelihood than if you're concentrating your bets in any single approach. Yeah, it's it's a, a member. It's a ten standard deviation event on a single type of, of security based on a, an unprecedented run on the bank that we've never seen. Now, this has been. Now we have all the facilities, and maybe not all of them, but a lot of facilities will be worked out so that this doesn't happen to a lot of the banks and regional banks. So it, it just you know what tends to happen in human nature, right? It's we had a, a shoe bomber and now we ought to take our shoes for the rest of our lives because we think that that's the next thing that's going to happen. So I wonder how many investors are like, well, we can't invest in funds at short bonds ever again because we have this issue. No, you know what? You're never going to see the next 10 standard deviation event happening. It is the black swan event for a reason. Well, it'll right? happen 20 years from now again, no, right? I mean, because at some point, in some, somewhere, right? Exactly. Why didn't it happen in 2008? Well, in 2008, it happened that when there was a run on the banking system and rates blew higher, the you know the the carry and the trend and all of the systematic macro factors were also pointed in that direction. So macro investors benefited from that shock, right? And yeah. the setup, right? We were not in a period of actually uh, uh, the fastest tightening cycle that we had seen exactly. in history. But I think Rodrigo's point is really good because, especially in our industry, we tend to fight the last war. We the, the there's this proclivity to keep fighting the last war after we had COVID. Everybody went off and bought 
uh, volatility strategies. And then 2022, the volatility strategies did not work. And you can cite so many, like countless examples of exactly this sort of dynamic. So I think Rodrigo's point is useful for us to sort of make sure that people don't have the wrong takeaways from this event. I think that's the yeah. key here. Well, and it, and the other thing is, if you think about the way the whole financial system has been financialized, and one might argue over-financialized, there are more significant feedback loops that are related to the financial system that directly impact impact the real economic machine of the development of stuff and things. And this is a this is a this feedback loop is larger and has more opportunities to spin out of control when you have this financialization dominating um, the system itself. It also creates, well, lo and behold, inequality of wealth. Are we seeing that? Gini coefficient, anyone? Um, how about the short-term focus of, of the boards of directors of various companies? Does that happen? Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe we need uh, better regulation in all this as the financial economy um, takes over. Did that happen? Did anyone foresee the things coming? Mm, uh, not really. So again, you know, you come back to the prioritization of diversification and something that we've, you know, if we can alter it from a CTA perspective and, and just talk about some of the general risk parity strategies out there, they actually weathered this storm pretty darn good. Yeah. So yeah, when you think all. about, you know, these in initial conditions that you guys are referring to and, and how does everything align together with positioning, um, it's just interesting. I, I, I can't help but feel with all of the financialization that has occurred in everything, you know, you don't buy jets and then have a jet fleet and then and then run an airline. You rent every piece of the airplane from the engines to the fuselage, you outsource a lot of the booking, you hedge your fuel costs, this whole world of, of you know, an OEM type structure and then hyper-financializing everything to try and garner a higher rate of return has some implications. And that might be why we're seeing a lot more of these events maybe over the last sort of 10 to 15 years than we might have seen historic. That's a really I mean, good I don't point, even know Mike. If that's and I, true. I think what you're highlighting is is also, so the magnitude of, of financialization and, and the amount of debt in the system uh, obviously means that, that moves are amplified, but also the interconnectivity mm -hmm. of not just, not just banks to, to other banks, which is also... At, spiraled out of control in terms of the number of nodes and, and the complexity there. But the um, shadow banking system or non-bank oriented um, financialization, right? And therefore, the opportunity or, or propensity for shocks within the financial system to propagate out to um, the, act, the, the actual economy, right, yeah. um, has been exacerbated very dramatically. And what we're observing here, too, is that the markets know this. And I mean, so how does that manifest? Well, Jerome Powell came out and spoke two Tuesdays ago and said, um, you know, we have no reason to believe that, that inflation is subsiding. We are sticking to our 2% target. We are uh, data dependent, but, it, but we will continue to raise rates um, until we get inflation back to our target. And, and two-year yields and Fed funds futures and the whole rates market went ahead and priced in another 50 basis points worth of hikes um, to terminal to the terminal rate after after Powell spoke. Fast forward two weeks. Two, yeah. And we're now pricing a deflationary um, outcome. And the Fed is gonna is in the market's pricing emergency cuts. So, you know, this is the, the rate at which the market turns because of its understanding of how complex the financial system has become and how connected it is to the real economy. Yeah, and to Mike's point with, you know, you got to have your, your area that's prep, preparation rather than prediction. You're going to have your area that's prediction rather than preparation. And, and the preparation part is already fitted with the right things. 
I, I was after you mentioned risk parity. I didn't, I didn't take a close look, but you're right. It, it's kind of like a, it was a, just a boring flat line over the, la- the month of March, because as commodities took a bit of a dive and you know equities did uh, not great, you had bonds offsetting those losses. It was just it was preparation. It was the right balance and the right allocations that kind of handled that. And now you know the prediction part generally comes in later, right? The prediction part generally gets caught offside. And then as things devolve or evolve, it'll start getting the broader, the broader trends that risk parity might not. So, you know, preparation and prediction, you kind of have to have all of them. Uh, it's hubris versus humility at all times. And how much you put one versus the other is what's going to kind of define how well you um, you get through these these moments of extreme duress that nobody saw coming, right? And so someone also mentions the all-terrain sort of portfolio, and there's a there's an article out there. I think uh, you penned that for the uh, CFA um, Society, right, Adam? Just talking yeah. about the blend of, you know, preparation versus prediction, if we want to go that route, and how one might think about trying to make a robust all-terrain portfolio that can handle all seasons in order to navigate uh, these types of situations in hopes that, you know, the math of, of losses versus wins, right? You lose 50%, you got to make back 100 if you can keep those losses a little bit more attenuated um, through the various avenues of allocation to uh, assets, systems, and strategies. Then getting back to all-time highs is, is a little easier. And, you know, the funding of a portfolio, if it's in any kind of decumulation, is more robust. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that is is something that, uh, again, I would encourage folks to to look up if they're interested in that kind of um, approach and, and, and sort of uh, go through the, the research piece there. Yeah, good call. I wanted to highlight, if we can, the IR Impossible uh, who has a quote from Powell from March 7th. I just want to read this out because this is, I think, the most incredible juxtaposition, right? So on March 7th, Powell said, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. Okay, that was the 7th. The, the ninth, we had a major interest rate shock event. And then the 10th was the interest rate shock event of the last 30 years in the opposite direction of Powell's statement, right? So you know, th- this, is, this is the ultimate flip-flop in market um, positioning. And, um, you know, any kind of systematic manager is just going to be expected to, to be unable to flip the switch on a complete change in regime uh, over a, over a three-day period, right? It's, it really is a remarkable time. <clears throat> but, but, and there, but there is a, an adjustment that occurs fairly rapidly and we've seen the adjustments yeah, in, yeah. you know, um, in indexes and whatnot and portfolios and um, I, I think that's the key in that and I think we've talked about this before letting the maniacs run the asylum right there is setting a strategic asset allocation and and closing your eyes and sort of letting the wildness of certain um, assets you know sort of dominate the, the volatility of the portfolio or there's the idea of well let's set a reasonable risk target and adjust the exposures to keep the risk experience a little bit more consistent. And, you know, we've talked about this in just the basic stock bond context uh, previously um, last year when we had a lot of stock bond correlation and the fact that with, with the lack of correlation and the increase in volatility, your experience as an investor is going to be unlike anything you've experienced over the previous, you know, whatever it was, 10 years. Um, and and so you know you you can think about addressing that problem in a couple of different ways. Adam, just to push back a little bit on on your your earlier point about uh, what the market is now signaling, I wonder how, how much signal can can be actually gleaned from the price dynamics in especially the short term end of the treasury curve. Uh, when, when when you have a move that is call it fear based, let's say everybody or or, or a large amount of investors and depositors have, have flocked away from the smaller banks and deposited uh, their money in treasuries just because, you know, it, it's similar to the OA dynamics. You don't know what the next domino is that's going to fall. So you, you might as well 
lend it to the ultimate uh, uh, too big to fail uh, institution, right? The U.S. Treasury. So I wonder if that sort of knee jerk portfolio move doesn't really offer that much signaling mechanism. Surely we can expect that if, if, if uh, credit markets freeze and if you do have a number of banking failures, that in fact, we are going to be coming into a deflationary shock that would then call for a 180 from the Fed and you would see those, those interest rate cuts and then the Fed would kind of catch up to the curve, if you will. But I wonder if in this first kind of few steps, the first few weeks, uh, uh, following this event, that there isn't that much signal there. And this really is, it's less about where the smart money thinks the curve is headed and more about where where depositors feel they have the least to lose. In the yeah, I would say it's it weakens the prior view that we're going to continue to go higher. The Fed's going to continue to push rates higher, right? It weakens that view substantially. Um, It doesn't necessarily suggest a pivot or a major regime change is on the horizon. And how do we know that? Well, because, you know, the the signals across different strategy sleeves are all dramatically shrinking, right? So, you know, there was a very strong view represented in the market, captured by the the macro signals um, in uh, the week of March 7th suggesting that rates were going to continue to, to march higher um, on, on Powell's initiative. And that view by market participants is now a lot more confused. And while we shouldn't take, you know, there's, there's obviously not a strong signal that rates are going to now march lower. The, the view that rates are going to continue to march higher, that has come in very dramatically now, right? And so, you know, if, I, if we just sort of look at the positioning in our systems, um, flipping long uh, non-U.S. dollars, right? We were sh- we don't long the dollar before. Now we're short the dollar in general, right? We were um, extremely short rates before. Now we are a little tiny bit short rates, right? We're very short bonds before. Now a little tiny bit short bonds. But but the point is that the positioning in aggregate across financials is very very low. In aggregate, just because you know the market is expressing that they don't have a strong view, how do we know? Because we're viewing the market and it's positioning from a variety of different angles, and all of those angles are sort of expressing confusion, right? So, you know, when when the market begins to express a stronger conviction in one direction or another, in whatever dimension that you're observing, then we would expect the exposures to expand to express that conviction in portfolios. And you're seeing that yes. right now, right? Like just the the systematic um, gold macro, the, the managed futures have reduced exposures, have trimmed down positions, are kind of in, in very, very low exposure territory. Um, and that tends to be the case whenever there's a shock, right? It's kind of like you see it all the time, just all the systems go a bit haywire and there's a bit, there's more noise and signal and you kind of flatline for a bit. Um, and, and we're kind of, I'm just looking at the trend, the Stockton trend index and how flatline it's been compared to other asset classes. It's, it's that mix that makes it difficult. And mm. you're still looking at like nothing really from the macro perspective has changed, right? If you think of 1998, when the LTCM crisis happened, that was attacked as if it was a broad economic event, but it was, I think in retrospect, it's seen as an acute problem, liquidity problem that, that was plugged. And it wasn't necessary to... to it wasn't solvency. It wasn't a solvency it, thing. It, it wasn't liquidity. A, yeah. And I think the Fed overreacts and, and you have this massive run-up in tech um, that leads into the crisis, right, in 2000. Similarly, like, what's... I'm looking at it, the market's up 3% for the year. Global, global MSCI Acqui is up 4%, right? And so you have a situation where a crisis has happened and everybody's clamoring for the Fed to change direction. They, I feel like they, they look at that in the same way that the, um, the central bank of the UK dealt with their pension issue, which is let's plug that issue. That's a liquidity issue. Let's go ahead and continue with our global macro uh, reality, which is inflation is still sticky. And you know, I'm not one to, to say whether the Fed's got the right indicators or not, but when they're, they're looking at those markers and saying, nothing's changed right you know there's an interesting aspect in the in europe and nothing's changed from a global macro perspective and bob elliott was saying how 
you know, micro events like this happen quickly, but the macro story changes very slowly. And it's going to take a while to, to, you know, figure out how all this plays out. But the macro story hasn't changed. The macro indicators that the feds respond to haven't changed that much. Well, I think, so I think the, you just want to acknowledge- The qualitative right, aspect. That it's, it's unlikely, yeah. There has been a major shift in that there was extremely high conviction priced in the market as of March 7th mm -hmm. and 8th mm -hmm. that we were going to continue on a steady trajectory of higher rates, right? That has very clearly shifted to, an, uh, uh, we are not clear, the market expressing that they are not clear they have very low conviction in, in the direction of Fed policy, right? Mm -hmm. We've also seen um, long rates decline pretty aggressively, right? Suggesting that the market is pricing a, you know, a, a larger potential for an economic shock and potential deflation, right? So whereas before all signals were pointing to the Fed was going to continue to push uh, liquidity out of the system and, and raise rates. Now it's very uncertain. And, and that's kind of where we are. And so you should, I, you know, in general, people should have low exposure from a tactical standpoint, because the picture is very uncertain. What might make this event, I think, slightly different uh, than other similar uh, historical analogies is the fact that we're dealing, like to, to look at our qualitative analysis real quick, is we're, we're dealing with this uh, Fed chairman that appears to be quite focused, some might say obsessed, with legacy and with the uh, analogy of the 70s and 80s and this uh, Arthur Burns, Paul uh, uh, Volcker dichotomy, right? And so because he is so focused on the legacy and how he will go down in history, and, th and this has been a topic that has come up time and time again, it may require something bigger to break to convince him <laughs> that a pivot is required. So it seems like he, he continues to try and, and win over uh, the market with, with uh, speech and not so much with actions. And, and I forget who said that the, the central banking is two-thirds theatrics and one-third the numbers, or, or, or I forget what the breakdown really is. Uh, but it does seem like there, there, there is this preoccupation with not going down in history as, you know, that the inflation is not coming back on my watch. And if that's the case, then uh, whatever the other signals might be, the laser focus on that single variable, uh, which, by the way, it, lagging and, and, and the, the effect of monetary policy is quite lagging, as we all know, 12 to 18 months on average is typically uh, how long it takes for, for any effect to take place. So we, we, look, we are coming into a period where the historical analysis might not uh, uh, bear too much uh, information. Right now. Look, it just speaks to going back all the way to the beginning of this podcast, which is you have these moments in, in these types of multifaceted bear markets. We kind of are in the land of the blind, right? Most of the time, it is unclear what is going to be the dominant trend. Who is going to, to win? Is it the market that's going to force the Fed's hand or is it the Fed that's going to break the market or make it come its way? It's really, it's really tough. And, and then you have these moments of clarity, weeks, if not months of clarity, where there's an, an, a dominant theme that we like all of a sudden in the market prices in a narrative and, and it just goes and you make new highs in these types of strategies. And then you go into obscurity again because we just, everybody here kind of just blabbed, blabbed on about, you know, different people's perspectives. Um, nobody can take a signal out of that. That's, that's exactly what we're seeing in, in the systematic signals. And it's exactly what we saw for three years in the tech crisis. And we just got to wait for those moments of clarity. Like, look, the February, March period of, of last year was a moment of clarity. Global war. Um, there was an issue with grains and commodities. It was an inflation story that finally bled in. Everybody got into that trend. You were able to get that moment of clarity, and then it became all jumbled up in the other half of the year, right? So again, it's just taking it back to the to, to basics. It's nobody knows right now. The signals are very. The signals we're watching are, are very low exposure. They're kind of in and out. You know, a lot of these are the in marginal and out dollar. 
is confused. The and marginal dollar doesn't know. really know what to do. We don't and, uh, know Mike Harris's get result. point. I like Mike Harris's point, which is the stock market is moving sideways for 224 days. They do not believe any of the narratives, right? It really is, you know, unclear. The signals are confusing depending on the look back that you use. So the stock uh, market is, is a, the stock market is a ferret on crack, dude. Like <laughs> we. It, <laughs> The fact that the stock market's gone sideways, it, it, that's basically just because all the DGENs are just getting tired. Like, don't worry, the, the stock market is going to do what the, the stock market does. I think that's definitely the not the canary in the coal mine. It's the lowest yeah. signal market that there that there is. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not that worried about what the stock market does. The stock market's going to be the stock market, but um, yeah. but I'll certainly, you know, uh, agree that there there at the moment there are no clear trends there are no clear economic trajectories there are no clear fed trajectories that um that the market can point to and so having a small having small positions on is probably the prudent way to way to play this for the time and just like that it could all change and it could become abundantly clear yeah you just kind of have to keep on playing that game and keeping your allocations in there um Anyway, I think we brought it full circle. Any Anything else anybody wants to add? The only thing I would add is that uh, next week's guests is gonna, are going to be kind of cool. We've got uh, Brian Moriarty, Moriarty from uh, Portnoy, Morningstar, and uh, oh, no, not, not Portnoy, Moriarty. And uh, Dave Nadig is going to join us. And it turns out Brian has a particular set of expertise in credit suisse bonds and at1s and cocos and all kinds of fun stuff so interesting um that's going to be an interesting discussion and um yeah so i would i would say we'll we'll be back to having some guests next week it won't just be uh won't be us and um in in chatting with brian there's some really interesting stuff that uh, occurred in the capital stack and and some bond portfolios around um around the credit suisse credit suisse restructuring very cool stuff so can't wait to dig into that next week so i'll give a plug for next week and i hope uh, i hope i guess what's the next bank to fall uh deutsche bank maybe he's deutsche bank maybe you know something (laughs) deutsche bank michael not not advice not advice not advice deutsche bank is not i don't know Uh, there's nothing there nothing there i don't know what he knows about and if you guys like the episode don't tweet it yeah. <laughs> if you guys like the episode, uh, hit that like button, share it, subscribe to the channel, and uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Yeah, here we go. Thanks, Al. Thanks to everyone's contribution and questions, too. Michael, you. appreciate your comments, as always. And um, you and I are always going to disagree about the relevance of the stock market. So, with love. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, all. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve masterclass.